Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Good to be back. This morning, I couldn't resist. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 12, and we're only going to take on the first three verses. They're just so packed. That's where we're going to be, so if you want to get your Bibles open to that, uh, that would be great. And while we don't have time to read back through the chapter 11, the Hall of Faith, you've heard it called, excuse me, um, you can't really read one without the other. Chapter uh, 11 and 12 are, are, are very much a companion set, if you want to think of them that way. So I'm thrilled that Matthew covered uh, Hebrews 11 last Sunday, as I understand it, as that will prepare us for chapter 12 today. So, and again, specifically, I'll be focusing on Hebrews 12, <clears throat> verses 1 through 3. This is one of those passages of Scripture with which I've always deeply resonated with. It's an inspiring passage. Perhaps some of you feel the same way. I find it to be very encouraging. It's full of hope and promise. And the driving metaphor in verses 1 through 3 is running a race. Those who follow Jesus, his disciples, one and all, are seen as athletes. Okay, And the journey of faith, the Christian life, is a race. This is a metaphor that Paul likes to use. He's fond of it. We see it in other places in the New Testament, such as right here. It's a metaphor that, now I'm not a big runner, but I understand enough about running and kind of get my arms around it. So hopefully we can all kind of get our arms around it. It certainly would have made sense to the original audience when you think of the Greek athletes and the games that go back so many centuries. So hopefully it resonates with you as well. Okay, let's dive. Let's just dive straight away, right in. Verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Okay, who is this great cloud of witnesses? Literally, cloud of martyrs, if you want to think of them that way. This is all those Old Testament heroes of the faith, which we just heard about in the preceding chapter, chapter 11, the Hall of Faith chapter. The heroes of the past are now the spectators, whereas all living Christians are in the arena, in the arena and in the game in this uh, section of Scripture. So the focus shifts to the present in chapter 12. Chapter 11 was all about the past, and, but the value and examples of the past is incorporated into this picture. So Hebrews 11, all about the past, who came before us, the foundations we have in the faith. Listen to what Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 has to say about them, our forebears, okay? All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Love that. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They lived by faith. That is the refrain in chapter 11 faith, by faith, by faith, over and over and over. So, and all those faithful heroes, saints, martyrs are said to surround us now in the present. If you have the picture of like an Olympic arena with you on the field and them surrounding you, that's, that's not too far off. That's pretty close to the mark. That's the picture. But unlike a typical sporting event, this great cloud of witnesses aren't, they aren't merely spectators. Because here's the thing about spectators. Spectators can be a little fickle, can't they? They can be a little capricious. If your team isn't doing well, right, boo, you might disengage, diss them, boo them, yell at them, give up, give up on them, right? Spectators can be fickle. That is not the picture here, 
That's not the picture here. This cloud of witnesses knows firsthand, experientially, what running this race is like because they run it and they finished it. In other words, they've trained, they've won the medal, okay? It's easy to harangue and harass someone on the field until you've tried to do it yourself and seen the sacrifice, the discipline, and the training of years that it takes to get the job done, right? Easier to remain the distant critic than to be an involved spectator, to get in the game. So these spectators, this great cloud of witnesses, they have skin in the game because they've been in it. So this great cloud of witnesses surrounds us. They are more than spectators. These cloud of witnesses are here to encourage us, and they are here to cheer us on. You can do it. You can finish. This great cloud of witnesses who surrounds us, we believe this, this cloud of witnesses surrounds us right now in worship every Sunday, every single Sunday. We're not only worshiping with the church across time zones today and across geography today, we're also joining in on what's already going on in the heavenly realms, right? And what's going on in the eternal? We're joining in with the eternal. We're joining in with the eternal holy, 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 singing that with the angels and archangels and with the faithful who have gone before us. So this great cloud now glorified, having shed the perishable for the imperishable, as the scriptures say. And that cloud, so often a symbol of glory. Think of Moses in Mount Sinai. Think of Jesus in the transfiguration. Here they are, a cloud of saints, fully glorified, cheering us on as we race. Folks, here's the crazy thing. Just think about this. This is what surrounds us every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year. The millions of voices of the faithful surrounding us. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, uh, they're not the only ones rooting for us. So are the angels. So are the martyrs. So are the saints that went before us. And not just during worship, although there's a special opening that happens in worship. All the time. Think about that. I mean, that's pretty powerful. How might that change our perspective, especially during difficult seasons of life? Knowing that that cloud of witnesses surrounds you, is rooting for you, is for you. And, of course, God heading, heading that crowd up. An eternal cheering section, rooting for you and I. How about that? I think it's something. Therefore, I'm going to go back to that. That's the first part of verse 1. Since we're not alone in our struggles, therefore, since we are being cheered on by the entire family of God and all of heaven, let us do what? Well, let's move into, the, move into the verse and see what it says. Let's cast off anything and everything that slows us down or impedes us from running the race. Okay, anything that impedes us. In other words, let's get lean and mean. Let's travel as light as possible so that we can run unencumbered and free. So cast off and throw off what exactly? Well, the category here is sin. That's the category. And it's defined as something of weight, uh, something that weighs us down, things that encumber us, things that prohibit us from running well. Have you ever tried, I don't even know if these are still around, ankle weights, right? Were those just an 80s thing or are they still around? Okay, maybe they're still a thing. Ever tried running with ankle weights? Not easy. Ever tried running or jogging with like a heavy backpack on? Not easy. Ever tried like trying to carry someone and run? You tire fast and you tire easily. And you're far more prone to injury when you're carrying this stuff. How good does it feel when you get to drop those things after you've been carrying them? For those of you that got, have gotten in the backcountry, strapped on a heavy backpack, you know, hiked all day, how good does it feel at the end of the day 
to get rid of that pack and break and make camp. I mean, it's like freedom. It feels wonderful after you've been carrying 30, 40, 50 pounds on your back. Folks, this is why things like confession and absolution are so important, right? We need to intentionally lay down our burdens, lay down our sins. We need to let go of the sins that this verse says entangle us, right? Prohibits us. Then we can run well. Then we can run fast. We can run with endurance. Then we can run the race marked out before us. Then we can run as God has made us to run. God's made you to run. He's made you fleet-footed. Now, this race, saying that, though, this race isn't about pure speed. It's about finishing. And to finish, it will require perseverance and endurance. Because, understood in this metaphor of the race, is that it has obstacles, it has barriers, it has difficulties. Look, the ground isn't level. The terrain isn't easy. It isn't friendly. Implicit here in this metaphor, the race, is that there is struggle And there's conflict, struggle and conflict. We live in a fallen world marred by sin, okay? We're not going to look beyond the, I mean, that reality is just there. So this race, one mentioned here that that they're describing, is more akin to an obstacle course than this nice flat arena track. It's perfectly groomed and nice and flat and all that. It's more like an obstacle course. Thus, the reminder of the need for discipline and for perseverance, right? This is the discipline of a long-distance trail runner, right? This isn't a sprint. Oh, heavens no. This is a marathon, okay? Long, you have a long-distance perspective with an awareness that we will encounter obstacles, barriers, struggle, and conflict. So, thus the exhortation, let us run with perseverance, seeking to run the race marked out for us. I'm going to get to that when we get to verse 2, okay, which we're at right now. So, we'll dig into that. Verse 2. See? lot in verse 1. lot there. I could go on and on, but let's leave it at that. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter or finisher of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 2 focuses on how we run race, how we finish. Our focal point, the prize, is Jesus. You know that phrase, eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize. Well, that's true here. That's exactly what it's talking about. And the, and the prize is Jesus. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Perhaps he's the first one to greet us when we cross over from this life to the next. Cross that finish line. I like to think so. We're to have our eyes fixed on him. Meaning, not on anything else. This is that intentional, intense focus that you see in an athlete's eyes. You ever watch the Olympics? Man, are they focused. I mean, it is intense. Now, the scriptures speak of being double-minded or of being lukewarm or of having a divided heart. These things, all these things are about our devotion to God. And they beg the question, well, are we divided? Does God have our full attention? Does he have our whole heart? Things like that. In this passage, we're admonished to keep our eyes on Jesus, be tunnel vision on Jesus. So no grandstanding for the crowd, right? No checking to see who's going faster or slower than you. No looking down at the ground before you. Jesus is the focal point. We look away from other things so that we can center our eyes on him. So it begs the question for us, where's your gaze? Where's your gaze? Where are your eyes set? Jesus is called uh, two things in this verse. He's called a pioneer, and he's called a, a finisher or perfecter of our faith. 
Pioneer provides a very accurate picture with this race metaphor. It's really descriptive. It's wonderful. Pioneers of any kind lead us into new virgin terrain. They lead us into previously inaccessible and undiscovered places. In this race, we're running on a trail, a path marked out, if you want to think of it that way. But look, folks, somebody set the course. Somebody pioneered the route. Somebody cut the trail through some, through some very difficult terrain. Somebody did that. The example I think of is think of, you know, with two-century-old technology, trying to lay railroad track through a mountain range. I mean, that had to be a bear, that virgin terrain, and to lay that track. In our case, Jesus makes a way for us to return home to God, okay? That's the course. That's the trail. We can't do this on our own, so Jesus goes ahead of us. He pioneers what and where we simply can't. He's also called a finisher or perfecter. Uh, in other words, uh, I, would, I would put it this way. If Jesus doesn't finish the race, if he doesn't finish, if he doesn't take on flesh, if he doesn't atone for our sins on the cross, if he doesn't ransom the faithful and take his seat at the right hand of God the Father, we simply can't follow. We simply can't. If he doesn't run the full circuit, the whole race, we are stuffed, okay? Jesus finished. Think of those words on the cross. It is finished. That's what he uttered before he crossed the finish line. It's finished, okay? He completes and perfects the track and the trail. Only he could build that bridge between heaven and earth. Only he could become Jacob's ladder, connecting heaven and earth, reconciling God and humanity. That's the course here. That's the race marked out for us, mentioned in verse 1, which Jesus pioneers and finishes. So Jesus establishes the course, and he finishes the course. He goes all the way, and the saints, the great cloud of witnesses, have followed behind him into the heavenly realms, and that's our journey too. That's our trajectory. And what did Jesus have his eyes set on? What was motivating him? What was driving him? What was the prize for him? We have to look at the latter, latter part of verse 2, which I'm going to read again for you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This joy, okay, Jesus speaks of it in John 15 and John 17, right before his crucifixion. Those famous chapters, they're beautiful. He had his sights fixed on joy. What was this joy that Jesus held to all the way into death? Joy over what? You and me. You and me. The joy set before him. His joy set on those who would come after him. His body and blood paving the way to the Father's house. Jesus' passion, his suffering and joy was for us. We are the joy set before him. We are the fruit of a profoundly costly salvation. And all this despite the shame, the indignity of the cross. He turns his back on it, says he scorns it. He chooses to endure the atrocities of the cross anyway because of the joy set before him. Same thing we're called to here, endurance, perseverance, right? Because the joy that God gives is always greater than the suffering of the present moment. I don't know about you, sometimes this is incredibly hard to believe, <laughs> right? Because when our suffering is great and at its deepest, it is hard to believe this part of God's promise. But we hold on to it, right? That the joy God gives is greater than the suffering of the present moment. So like Jesus, our sufferings will be transformed into something deeper 
into something stronger, richer, and greater. They can become the stuff of joy, scriptures say. After enduring the cross, completing the circuit, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. Finish line. He ascends and returns to heaven, fully becoming Jesus the King. Now the course is fully established. Now the course is marked out before us. Now the course is eternally secured. This trail doesn't wash away in a rainstorm, okay? Jesus has blazed a trail between heaven and earth, and this cannot be undone. It's finished, okay? It's finished. Verse 3. So consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So consider him. Literally, this means reckon him. Which, what's reckon me? That's a fancy old-fashioned word. It's a way of saying, assess your, yourself in the light of the race that Jesus ran. Okay? The exhortation is to look at the hardships of Jesus and to weigh and assess ourselves in light of him, which plays out in verse 4 and onward, which we're not going to get to, but you can read that yourself and, and make those connections. The call to fix our eyes on him. We keep his passion before our eyes, that profound intertwining of joy and suffering. We keep our eyes on the prize. We consider him. We consider his life, his sacrifice. We consider him, and that allows us to see our life rightly, to see our life correctly. An example, uh, the joy he had for us, the reason he suffered, which we just talked about, we seek the same joy. We are to be propelled by the same joy, motivated by the legacy we leave behind for those after us, to bless them, to cheer them on, to encourage them, right? So consider him and the race he ran. Weigh and assess your life in light of Jesus's, who endured such opposition, or the word hostility, some translations say, from sinners. Jesus's endurance, here spoken of in the perfect tense, means that what Jesus did has a lasting Abiding significance. It's not just a one-time, it's not a one-time deal once and done, and well, that was over. No, lasting, abiding significance. He endured opposition, and so can you. So can we. Jesus cut a trail through impossible obstacles. But the opposition of sinners, they just couldn't stop God's good purposes. Thanks be to God. Jesus endured opposition. He endured hostility. Those conflicts and struggles and obstacles on the trail I talked about it a minute ago, to pave a trail back to God when we certainly didn't have the strength or the will or the way to do that. So that, last part of verse 3, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And the you there is a y'all, so that y'all will not grow weary and lose heart. The point isn't Jesus had it worse than you did, so you should shut up and stop complaining about your life, Okay? None of this is intended to uh, diminish our suffering. I think that misses the point, though we do need that context. We do need that reminder sometimes. The point is Jesus loved us enough to endure the horrors of the cross. Verse 1 says we keep our eyes on the prize because he's to be an encouragement to us. Keep going. You can do this. This is the love that undergirds your every step. So when you are weary and have lost heart, have you been there before? Raise your hand if you've been weary and lost heart before. Every hand should be up. And if not, I hate to say it, it's coming. (laughs) I hate hate to say that. Um, But are you weary and have you lost heart before? 
we cling to Jesus in those moments. We fix our eyes, our gaze upon him. Earlier, I likened the life of faith to a marathon, not a sprint, right? If you run marathons, anybody here a marathoner or done a marathon? Or There we go. A few hands. Everybody's tentative. They don't want to be. Uh, I don't, but I've read a little bit about them <laughs> from the comfort of my armchair. <laughs> there is a point in the race when you hit something called the wall. Yes, and I guess it happens roughly mile 17 to 21, somewhere in there. They say you hit the wall. The point of me saying that is you will, it is a marathon, you will hit the wall. You will. If you haven't yet, you're going to. I don't say that in a, it's not a morose way. It's just you will bottom out on this journey. It's, it's guaranteed. Seasoned runners plan for this, okay? They think through and they strategize how they're going to handle this on a mental level because sometimes the body isn't working well with the brain when you hit the wall, right? So you've got to have preparation. The wall will come in your life and probably more than once, okay? It will come. So do you know this and what's your plan, right? Do you know this? What's your plan? Hebrews 12 offers us, Hebrews 12 offers us a plan. And it is that eyes on the prize. Jesus, draw your strength from him. Keep your eyes upon him. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. When you're weary, when your heart is losing hope, it begs us to check our gaze. Check your gaze. Where are you looking? Where are you fixated? Are you looking at the ground? Are you looking at the activity around you? Are you looking at the other runners? Am I behind? Am I winning? Are you looking at the mess of human suffering in the world? When we fix our eyes on Jesus, there's something of recalibration that happens. There's something of reorientation that happens. The picture in verses 1 through 3 is that we are being cheered on, and we're never alone at any point during the race. Never. Think about that. The great cloud of witnesses and Jesus himself surround us. Okay? All cheering us all the way to the finish line. I find that to be a tremendous encouragement, a message of hope and promise. Let me close here with some, some thoughts. Uh, I think this is an example for us as a church right here and now. It begs a few questions, I think. Uh, let, me, let me explain. Do we cheer one another on, right? Do we encourage one another? When someone is getting back up, when they have just been kicked to the curb by life, and they're stumbling and trying to get back on their feet, they're dusting themselves off, struggling to run, do we come alongside them? Do we offer them a drink of water and say, you can do this, man, get up. Come on, get moving. You can do this. When someone is running well, do we say, well done, go. Good form, good sprint, go. Do we spurn each other on to love and good deeds? The faithfulness of the saints who've gone before us is to encourage us. Why should that be any different now? What I mean by that, the living encouraging the living to finish well, right? We have such power in that, to bless each other. Our lives are to be a living testimony right now, just not after we pass on. Then we can be a testimony. No, right now, which still takes faith, investment, sacrifice, all that stuff. I think there's also a simple reminder to fix our eyes corporately on Jesus. It's easy to read this passage just think it's me, and I'm running, and I'm in the race, and I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus. Uh, but the reality is we're running this together, are we not? We're in this race together. We're a ragtag running crew of the faithful. It's not just about me finishing the race, 
though we celebrate those individual things. It's about us finishing this race. And we can't do that without fixing our collective eyes on Jesus. So are our eyes on Jesus? Lord, maybe so. Let's not forget we're in this race together, right? Running side by side. We have each other. I mean, one of the beautiful things about the Israelites and they're wandering around the desert, they were not alone. <laughs> they had each other. They had each other. We have each other. We're running a race together. Hebrews 11:39 says this. I'm going to focus on one part of the verse just very briefly. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Focus here. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. In other words, I mean, how about that? Together we become complete, whole, and things become as they should be. Evidently, folks, we need each other in this marathon. God apparently designed it that way. How about that? For us to live and to run together. This course marked out for us by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the pioneer. You are the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. We are on this path because you cut the trail. And you made a way back home to God for us. We thank you for that. Would you teach us what it means to run well? Teach us what it means to encourage one another, lift each other up, to run as a pack. <laughs> you teach us how to run as a body and to finish well. In the name of Christ, do we pray. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand. We'll confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. With one voice, we believe in one.